2 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, After it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg, Amah, from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad Etzer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad Etzer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went, and David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadad Etzer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Betah and from Berotei, cities of Hadat Etzer, King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadad Etzer, then Toai sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadad Etzer and defeated him, for Hadad Etzer had been at war with Toai. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze, King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines and from Amalek and from the spoil of Hadad Etzer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and the Edomites became David's servants, and, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benai, the son of Jehoiada, the Pelethites, and David's sons were the chief ministers. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, David is fully, finally entrenched as king. In, he has united the kingdom. He's moved the capital to Jerusalem. He's established the ark of God in Jerusalem. David has come to a place in his life where he longs to serve the Lord. He will now 
confront his enemies. He will subdue his enemies. He will expand Israel's borders. David has matured. David has grown up. David has become strong. David wrote Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 where it says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You know, one of the amazing things about that psalm and that passage is the utter contempt that David has for his enemies and his absolutely overwhelming desire to overthrow them. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, God will fulfill ultimately that promise in Jesus. David's son will inherit the nations. And we understand something. Even though Jesus will fulfill the prophecy, God began to fulfill the prophecy even in David. Remember, God had earlier given another promise to the children of Israel. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, it says, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, to the great river Euphrates. And so David came to a radical place in his life and in his walk with God. That radical place of of walk and maturity in his life was he woke up one morning and he said, I believe the promises of God and I am going to walk in the promises of God. You know why that's important? Because it's perhaps the most important question you can ask yourself. At what point will you wake up? There's going to come a morning when you will wake up and you will get up out of your bed and you will stop living a mediocre life and you will stop living an inconsistent life and you will stop living an equivocating life and you'll stop living a double-minded life. You're going to wake up and you're going to go, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to live for the promises of God in my life. That's where David is at. That's where David has decided to live. And so, in chapter 8, it records a series of conquests in the reign of David. Let me ask you a question. Do you like war movies? Some of you are going yes, and some of you are going no. Some people like war movies. Some people don't. In real life, real war usually results in real people really dying. For those of you who have experienced combat and experienced death, you understand something as we read this passage. It may seem like a story from a long time ago, but David's real wars resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of human beings. There are all kinds of wars. There are just wars. There are unjust wars. There are wars to preserve. There are wars to protect. There are wars to expand. There are wars to settle disputes. And so for the Christian, war becomes a metaphor. 
It becomes an image, a type, a picture of the battle that we must face in our life as we understand that there are enemies in the Christian life. And we know what our enemies are. It is the world that is in opposition to the things of God in the person of Jesus. It's our own flesh. It's sort of like this this sick circumstance inside of our hearts that's constantly trying to thwart the plan, the will, the purpose, the spirit of God inside of us. Paul talks about it in Galatians 5. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. So we know that we have enemies, the world. We have enemies, the flesh. We have enemies, the devil. And the Bible invites the Christian to enter into the war and enter into the struggle. Over and over again in the New Testament, you're described as a soldier to fight a good fight. The warfare that we wage is described as a spiritual warfare. And so we know that David has promised a throne and a dynasty in chapter 7. And so the most important thing about David's war isn't just the details of the war. The most important thing about these wars is David's response to God in the details of his life. Now, here's the key. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. David is clearly the king. And he is going to establish the borders. He has enemies to the west, the Philistines. He has enemies to the north, the Assyrians. He has enemies to the east, the Ammonites and the Moabites. He has enemies to the south, the Egyptians. But it becomes a perfect picture of you. Because no matter wherever you turn, if you look up, if you look down, if you look to the left, if you look to the right, there are people and places and circumstances that are trying to get you to not love and honor and serve and witness and minister to the Lord God. You live in a culture that defines you as a consumer. You live in a culture that defines you as a Republican or a Democrat. You live in a culture that defines you as a liberal or a conservative. You live in a world that says you are a good citizen if you adopt its values and you adopt its ideas and you adopt its goals. But Paul says, you have dual citizenship. You are citizens of the planet Earth, but you also are citizens of heaven. And the Bible is inviting you to have Jesus as your king and heaven as your home. You've all heard the expression that the battle belongs to the Lord. And it's true. But there comes a time in each Christian's life when they have to grow up and they have to mature and they have to become strong. And I believe Christians must come to a place in their life where they are willing to cooperate with God in the power of the Holy Spirit to leave the elementary things behind and grow up. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, I'm going to read all the way to verse 29. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. Paul writes and he says, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ 
that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. What promise? What promise is he talking about? It's the promise that through Abraham's seed and through Abraham's son, through Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David, a Messiah would come. The promise, the ultimate promise that is given to Abraham and Abraham's seed is that, you know, people often ask me, why are the Jews the chosen people? They are chosen to bring forth the Messiah. Did they fulfill that calling. Yes, they did. God, in his grace and his mercy, through the wonderful means of promises given to real people in time and space, brought forth a Messiah. And here's what Paul is saying to you. Some of, perhaps there's a Jewish person here. Perhaps the vast majority of you are Gentile. But whether you are Jewish or whether you are Gentile, you all become heirs according to the promise When you embrace Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Here's the idea. The Christian life is a life where you receive grace and mercy and hope and forgiveness and love and transformation. Correct? Is there opposition? If you haven't experienced opposition as a Christian, then you're either dead or living in a bubble. The ongoing battle with the forces of darkness and wickedness, with our own evil desires, with our past failures, is a constant struggle. And so the Christian walk is described as just that. It's a walk. It's described as a battle. You know, high in the Alps, uh, the Swiss Alps, is a monument raised in honor of a faithful guide who perished while ascending a peak to rescue a stranded tourist. And inscribed on the memorial in stone are these words... Three words. He died climbing. I love that. The reason why I love that is because a maturing, growing Christian has that kind of attitude. It is, I live, I love, I serve, I walk, I go, I grow. Now think about that. And now reread verse 1 of chapter 8. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg, Amah, from the hand of the Philistines. Here's the deal. David takes the initiative and he attacks the Philistines. He doesn't live in that constant wicked circumstance where the Philistines were always attacking him, um, um, annoying him hounding him, subduing him and the rest of the children of Israel. He takes the initiative. And I want you to understand something. The Philistines were continual enemies against the children of Israel, weren't they? Over and over again, you read, and over and over again, we've read in 1 Samuel how the Philistines came and, and 
hurt them and, and annoyed them and subjugated them and killed them and subdued them. But look what David does. He doesn't not only avoid fighting, but he also does something else that I find really important. Past failures and past defeats did not hinder David from taking the initiative and taking the fight to the enemy. You know why this is important for you? Because some of you sitting here have struggled with persistent sin or a persistent plaguing sin a besetting sin, as the, as the Bible calls it. And over and over again, you thought, I've tried to deal with this over and over again. I've tried to deal with it. And I failed each and every time. I've made New Year's resolutions and Easter resolutions and summer resolutions and winter resolutions that this is not going to be a part of my life anymore. And now you've given up. But if ever there was a time for you to take the fight to the Philistines it is now. Past failure didn't hinder David. Sometimes we're reluctant to fight a foe because we've lost so many times. And if you're sick and tired of trying to get the victory over a persistent enemy, it's time you understand something. The battle belongs to the Lord. When you are in the place and in the position that God has entrusted you with, he's going to give you the resources in order to fight the fight. Here's the big question. Was it God's plan and was it God's will and was it God's intention to have David be on the throne? The answer is yes. What is the first function of the king? It's to point people to the true and the living God, but it's also to protect the citizens from the enemies. It's his job. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is the king. And because Jesus, David's son, is the king, he has given you all of the resources in order to fight the persistent enemies that are your enemies. Ellen Radpath made the comment, the thing that fascinates me about this complete victory is the utter contempt with which David treated the great power of his adversaries. And look what it says, Metheg Ama. You know what that is? It's another name for Gath. It's the Philistine capital. But when David became the king, the Philistines were attacking and taking territory from the children of Israel. But now under his leadership, God's people are going to take back the lost territory. And I got to tell you something. If Jesus is king and if Jesus is Lord... Jesus is going to prompt you, and Jesus is going to urge you, and Jesus is going to encourage you that your life isn't your own, that he loves you, and that he's going to make a provision for you. As a matter of fact, Metheg Amah is another name, not only for Gath, but it has an important meaning, and I'm going to get to that in just a moment. David takes the initiative for at least two reasons. Number one, to consolidate the empire. Number two, to secure his borders and to protect his people. David is providing for the national defense. David needs to make sure that the people can trade goods and services. David wants to make sure that there's a trouble-free living. And remember what the New Testament says? Paul writes to the Romans and he says, So far as it's possible, live at peace with all people. But sometimes it's not possible. 
Sometimes the world and sometimes the flesh and sometimes the devil makes it difficult for you to to be a Christian. Have you ever prayed quietly or even out loud? Lord, you didn't tell me it was going to be so hard to be a Christian. Well, you know what? It's not hard to be saved. We're saved by grace through faith, huh? We have forgiveness for free. We have redemption for free. We have the promise of eternal life for free. We have the hope of heaven for free. There is nothing that you have to do to be more accepted by God in Christ than you already are. And Paul writes and he says, if Jesus is willing to love you and die for you, how much more is he willing to give you all things because he's risen from the dead? David is making it possible for the people to live. And there comes a time in our life when we as Christians, having done all to stand, must stand. Now, I'm going to draw particular attention to that word, metheg amah. Because it's interesting. In the original language, it means the bridal of the mother city. Now, for those of you who have any Western upbringing whatsoever, what is the purpose of a bridal? A bridal is placed in a horse's mouth. And what does the bridal do? It causes the horse to go to the left or to go straight or to go right. And, and I think this becomes an important point because it may mean one of a couple of ideas. It may mean that the city of the Philistines, Gath, controlled the other cities. It could mean that David conquered the leading city which controlled the other cities. In whatever the case, Gath is captured. And the moment that Gath is captured, the rest of the Philistine empire folds like a house of cards. Why is this important for you? Because again, you have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And once you can secure a victory over the devil, you're going to be fine. Well, has Jesus secured the victory over the devil? Here's what the Bible says. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, has made an open display of the devil. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, the devil became ineffective. The Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. The Bible says that God has given you his Holy Spirit who lives inside of you to deal with the pernicious problems that are our flesh. David, in order to kill the presence of a persistent enemy, understood something that becomes really important. You've all heard the expression, in order to kill the snake, you have to cut off its... That's exactly right. Once the snake's head is gone, as big, as ugly, as terrifying, as intimidating as the rest of the snake is, you cut off a snake's head and you make it impotent. David is going to take the fight to the enemy. 
He secures the western border. He overthrows the one city that controls the rest of the cities. Gath has been that bridle that has stirred Israel to go in whatever direction Gath chose, but no more. David takes the bridle out of the master's hand. Let me put it to you a different way. If you've ever been assaulted, if anyone has ever pulled a knife on you or a gun on you, I know a couple of you are police officers. I know a couple of you have been soldiers. I know a couple of you know what it's like to have someone pull a knife on you or a gun on you. I have had knives and guns pulled on me. When a person points a gun at you, you know what happens? Your whole attention goes to the gun. Your attention isn't simply on the person who's holding the gun. Your attention isn't simply on the person who's holding the knife. Your energy, your dreams, your hopes, your desires is focused on that gun. And so you know what goes through your mind? Several things could go through your mind. I'll tell you what went through my mind when I had a gun pulled on me. The first was anger and resentment. Because I knew that if that person pulled the trigger, my whole life would be a different life. And that makes some of us angry, doesn't it? That all someone has to do is pull the trigger and your life is either over or forever changed. And then I began to think about my wife. I thought, my wife is going to be so mad when she finds out I'm dead. (laughs) Isn't that the craziest thing you ever heard? She's going to be so angry that I dragged her all the way from California to Albuquerque, New Mexico with three children under five years of age for what? To die in a pizza parlor? This makes no sense. But here's the point. David took the gun out of the Philistines' hands and then pistol whipped them. There comes a point where you don't want to live in fear and you don't want to live in intimidation and you don't want to live in subjugation. And David said, we're done here. And in verse 2, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those who would be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. He secures the western border. Now he's going to secure the eastern border. These were the people who lived south and east of the Dead Sea in what you and I call Jordan. These are the descendants of Lot in his incestuous relationships with his daughters. Remember, this is that side of the family where there's not too many forks in the family tree. So what does it mean he forced them to the ground in order to be measured? Again, Bible scholars are split and divided over this. But David must have caused all the men to lie on the ground. And then taking a measure, he counted off two measures of men to be put to death, leaving every third measure alive. And we aren't told why. For slaves, for workers, for tribute, we're not told. One Bible scholar says, or it may have been that all the men were tall enough to reach the upper two measures were put to death. And only those who were short enough to come within the third measure were left alive. We're not told. We're not sure why David deals so harshly with the Moabites. War is a nasty business. We remember that David had a Moabite grandmother. Isn't that true? 
We also understand that when David was in danger, he sent his parents to Moab in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3. But according to many Hebrew traditions, his parents never made it out of Moab alive, that Jesse, his mother, and his family were slaughtered. And so here's the idea. David secures the eastern front. And you have to understand something. The Moabites were utterly corrupt. And so when you see the word Moabite, think Hollywood. (laughs) Think every nasty, every filthy, every wicked thing that you can think of. When the devil couldn't corrupt the people of God any other way, he turned them away from God by corrupting them morally. In Psalm chapter 60, verse 8, it says, Moab is my wash pot. That's an idiomatic expression for urinal. It's sort of like the newspaper in Albuquerque. It's called the urinal. Because in Spanish, we don't pronounce the J. So here's the idea. Moab is my wash pot. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think of a sensitive, family-friendly way to say this. It says, over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. David is saying, Moab. I will use them to wash my feet. But remember, the wash pot was used for way more than just washing feet. Edom, I will cast my shoe. Edom were the descendants of Esau who exchanged his birthright for a bowl of lentils. They were willing to ditch their spiritual birthright in in order to satisfy the cravings of the flesh for a moment of pleasure. Alan Redpath says, To empty out the dust of your sandal over the head of another was an Eastern symbol of claiming that person as a slave. It was David's way of saying, I am going to make these people my slaves. Now this becomes an important point. For years and years, we lived as slaves to Satan. For years and years, we lived as slaves to the world. We would watch the TV, and whatever the TV said, we would want it. I grew up watching TV because it was a cheap babysitter. My mother would turn on the TV, and there was Captain Kangaroo. She would turn on the TV, there was Felix the Cat. She would turn on the TV, and there, of all places, was Beanie and Cecil. Now, many of you are way too young to remember any of these people. But over and over again, I would watch the TV, and the TV would say, Gino, you will never be a happy person going to kindergarten unless you have a Beanie and Cecil lunch pail. And I believed the TV, so that when my mom came home and she said, here's a brown paper sack to put your bologna and mustard sandwich in, and I go, no, we're done with that. Beanie and Cecil lunch pail for me. See, you're laughing because you understand something. Once it goes on TV and it invites you to want it, you want it. And David and the children of Israel were living under constant pressure by the Philistines and by the Moabites. And they didn't think that they had any other way to live. But it wasn't true anymore. 
things were going to change radically. And look at verse 3. It says, David also defeated Hadatzer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory, all the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, you have to understand something. He secured the western border. He's secured the eastern border. And now he goes north and east, and he secures the border. In those areas where David desired to collect tribute from the civilian populations, he establishes garrisons of soldiers, and these soldiers protected the area against rebellion and assured prompt payment of tribute. And so it says in in verse 5, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad Etzer, king of Zobah, he killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. The Syrians became David's servants and brought him tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadad Etzer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Betah and from Berotei, cities of Hadad Etzer. King David took large amounts of bronze. You have to understand something that as this wave is sweeping north as he's conquering and subduing the enemies this is not just a simple battle this is an overwhelming victory of a major nation that had caused grief to the children of Israel because David woke up one morning and decided to believe the promise of God David defeated Hadatzer in a fierce battle. And it would appear that David wanted to extend the rule all the way to the Euphrates River. Again, remember, this is part of the promise to David's father, Abraham. David secures the area to the headwaters of the Jordan. Again, in order to secure a nation, they have to have freedom. And they also have to have Water, and they also have to have the ability to survive. And so, this is no small victory. And the troops of Israel defeat a major civilization with no modern warfare equipment. They were. They were forbidden from securing horses and chariots, the modern equivalent of heavy armor and artillery and tanks and armored personnel carriers. And so, the idea is they go in and they win this incredible victory. And by the way, since the time of the great exodus from Egypt, when Joshua conquered Canaan, Joshua was given orders by God, explicit orders, that when the enemy horses, they were to be destroyed and their chariots were to be burnt with fire. And you would think, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And you know what the reason is? Because God wanted them to trust him. Well, you know, God, it's really one thing to trust you, but tanks and armored personnel carriers and modern equipment. You know, in a fight, it's, you know, it's the Chicago way. They bring a knife, you bring a gun. They put one of yours in the hospital and you put one of theirs in the morgue. They kill one of yours and you kill their entire family. That's the Chicago way. In the world, the world's way of dealing with things is overwhelming force. 
And some people read, especially people who love horses, they read, well, this just makes no sense. Why did David ruin the horses? Well, think about it. Number one, he can't keep them. Number two, he can't give them back to the enemy. You know, one of the most amazing things in this particular passage is David taking only that very small amount for conquest and victory. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Some people trust in chariots, and some people trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You see, when you start living a life of victory, and when you start living a life of freedom, again, the world is going to invite you that your victory and your freedom should be on the world's terms. But make no mistake about it, you're a Christian. Do you know what you're supposed to trust? The Lord. Do you know what you're supposed to trust? The Bible. Do you know what you're supposed to trust? The promises of God. Think about David's strategy for victory over his enemies. I am not going to trust their weapons. I'm going to trust your weapons. Do you understand how important that is for your strategy? To win the fight? David said, death to anything and everything that could lead to a misplaced confidence. And by the way, later on, David's sons would make the mistake of returning to Egypt for chariots and horses. And this failure to trust the Lord would eventually lead to the collapse of the kingdom. The city was located. And so there was a ruler or king in a small city of Hamath. Look what it says in, in verse 8 and then in verse 9. Also from Betah and from Bet. Berotei, cities of Hadatzer, King David took a large amount of bronze. Again, gold, silver, bronze. And in verse 9 when it says, When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadatzer. Now Hamath, is, uh, it's the northern boundary of the land of, of Israel. And the city was located on the banks of the Orontes River, which was considered the most important settlement in the area of what you and I would call Syria. And the modern name is Hama. And archaeologists have discovered evidence of Hittite influences in the region. But again, what happens is even the other kings begin to accept and understand that a strong, stable, secure, free Israel was in their best interest. You see, sometimes we think that just because a person doesn't act, look, believe exactly like we do, that they're our enemies. But if a person who doesn't necessarily even know God or know the Lord, says, you know what? It's in everybody's best interest that there be freedom, that there be security, that there should be an ability that we can freely promote trade and freedom and those kinds of things, that that's a good thing. And, and that's the idea here. And then in verse 10, it says, then Toai sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadad Etzer and defeated him for Hadad Etzer had been at war with Toai. Hence the old Middle Eastern proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my, not enemy, no, friend. 
Okay, you're not doing good with Middle Eastern Proverbs, so we'll just have to impart a few more to you. Now, in verse 11, it says, King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. Now, that little bit of information should cause a whole lot of excitement for you. You want to know why? Because the treasures and the trophies that used to belong to the devil can be used to glorify God. The treasures and the trophies that used to belong to the devil can be used to glorify God. And you see, some of you were trophies in another life, in another circumstance. God used your gifts and God used your talents and God made you and formed you and shaped you and gifted you and gave you the collection of the sum and the substance of everything that is you and then you used it for wicked and selfish reasons. That was never the way it was supposed to be. Your talents were never ever supposed to be used for Satan and they were never ever supposed to be used for selfishness. They were always intended to bring glory to God. And so David takes the spoils of war. He dedicates them to the Lord. Again, he realizes this amazing thing that his ability to gain wealth, his ability to keep wealth, his ability was a gift given by the true and the living God. And so he takes much of the wealth and he dedicates it to the future acquisition of the temple and its supplies. And he says he's going to use it for the Lord. My friend David Gusick, who's a Calvary pastor, writes, David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadad Etzer. David took what was the glory of the enemy and transformed it into the trophies of the power and goodness of God. Those shields of God were now in the temple testifying to God's work in and through David. God loves to take people and things that are trophies for the devil and make them trophies to his power and to his grace. Isn't that good? When I was a kid growing up, we used to think, wouldn't it be so cool Wouldn't it just be great if all of the Beatles could get saved? Wouldn't it be wonderful if Bob Dylan had this epiphany and he realized that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? And then he came out with slow train coming and it was like like revival had broke out. Guess what? It is no less miraculous that God would save somebody like you. That he would transform somebody like you. That he would take someone like you and that you would become his trophy. And look what it says. From Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, from the spoil of Hadad Etzer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. And David made himself a name. When he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. Do you understand what's happening? This is the key passage in the chapter. David made himself a name. How did David make himself a name? Headed for city lights. Climbed the ladder to fortune and fame. Worked my fingers to the bone. Made myself a name. 
You know what's happened? See, David is already famous as far as you're concerned. Because you've already gone through 1 Samuel and almost eight chapters of 2 Samuel. But David was a nobody. And now, it's official. David is famous. David made himself a name by being skilled in politics and war. And David was without peer in negotiating settlements with foreign dignitaries. But note, the Lord was with David. Who was giving David favor? God was giving David favor. Who was creating a mechanism whereby David could subdue the enemies to the west? It was the Lord. Subdue the enemies to the east? It was the Lord. Subdue the enemies to the north? It was the Lord. But guess what? This is always the dangerous moment. The dangerous moment isn't just simply when you wake up and you decide that you're going to believe that the promises of God are true. It isn't simply the moment that you decide that you're going to embrace the promises of God and that you're going to believe it's real for you. The moment that you do that and the moment that you begin to live your life that way, guess what? People are going to stand up and they're going to take notice that you are living your life seriously in the promises of God. But guess what David does? David refuses to touch God's glory. In Psalm 60 verse 12 it says, Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. David understands something. It's the Lord. And David takes the promises of God seriously. Genesis 15, 18. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And David says, I am Abraham's descendant and I am going to occupy all of the promises that God has given to me. And guess what? The promises aren't from the Nile to the Euphrates for you. You know where the promises are? It's from Genesis to Revelation. And you, when you begin to open up your Bible and walk through those 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, and you find your way through Exodus and Leviticus, and you begin to stumble at Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you wonder if Exodus has any meaning for you whatsoever, if all of those other books, if Joshua and Judges, as you make your way through the Bible and you begin to read the promises, and you begin to occupy all the promises that God has for you, guess what? There's a transformation that takes place. Remember what we read in Galatians chapter 3 verses 23 through 29. Start reading the promises and then appropriate them for yourself and look at David's government. It says in verse 14, he also put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom, that's to the east. He put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all the people. Now think about this for just a moment. He's blessed. And one of his greatest abilities is the ability to rule responsibly as he shares leadership. And by the way, if you want anything to grow, 
you have to be willing to share responsibility and serve people. Isn't that true? If you want anything to grow, you have to share responsibility and serve people. David's cabinet is small, but it's significant. So he rules, look what it says in verse 15, with judgment and justice. And that's exactly what government requires, just that balance. Good judgment and then the right application of justice. Don't you wish to God that that would be representative of our government? You know what? That's what we need to pray. That our government will exercise good judgment and that our government will have the right application of justice. Because guess what happens when you live in a world where people are making good choices and exercising just conclusions? You live in a happy and a free society. David is king, David is judge. And in order to exercise both justice and judgment, he has to be personally involved in the adjudication or the legal process. And again, it becomes a type and a picture of a future kingdom where his son, Jesus, exercises perfect judgment and perfect justice. And let's take a quick look at his staff. Look at verse 16. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahitub, was recorder. Zadok, the son of, of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Zariah was the scribe. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were the chief ministers. Now, again... Any healthy and well-balanced church, as well as any healthy and well-balanced government, has to have a good staff. Joab is the first person to breach the defenses of Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 6. You'll remember it says, Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, and he became chief. In other words, here's David's position. Prove your ministry. Prove your leadership. Guess who gets to be in charge of the armies? The person who has proven himself by really engaging in the battle. Do you want to know how you get a job at Calvary Chapel? You do the job. You know who is the person most likely to be on my staff? The people who are already doing the job. Prove your ministry. Proven leadership. And Jehoshaphat, of jumping Jehoshaphat fame. Uh, again, this is biblical proof that white men can jump. Actually, that's eisegesis at its worst. Huh? There's nothing in there that says he jumps. Why do we even say that? Jumping Jehoshaphat. He's listed as the recorder, which probably means he's in charge of internal affairs. He's sort of like the advisor. He's like the secretary of state. He's sort of like head of David's national security panel. Zadok may have been a priest of the Jebusite shrine who was promoted to his position for political reasons. Then we have Zariah, the scribe. This is the guy. He's the pencil pusher. He's the document handler. He is the... IT guy on steroids. He has no real power, however, 
Since his father isn't mentioned, he might have been a foreigner who comes to power. It was his job to keep the records of the kingdom's activity and draw attention to the needs of the kingdom. You know what else it might mean? It might be, mean the reason why we have this book. Because someone wrote it down for your benefit. And then Benaiah in verse 18 where it says, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. The Cherethites and the Pelethites were the mercenary armies that watched King David. He's sort of like Luca Brasi to Don Vito Corleone. For those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, The Godfather, there's a scene in a movie where this great, big, massive guy, he comes to Don Corleone on the day of his daughter's wedding and he goes, Don Vito, it is a great privilege. Don Vito, it is with much respect that I... You know, and he keeps hitting himself over the head, but he's this great big dude who is the muscle in Don Vito's army, and Benaiah is the muscle in David's palace. He's sort of like the head of the secret service to the president. His job is to protect the king, and Benaiah earned his reputation by rubbing out two famous Moabite thugs. He also was thrown into a lion, <laughs> into a pit with a lion, according to the scripture, and Benaiah kills the lion. And, and also, Benaiah is this guy who he is running after an Egyptian, and he literally takes the Egyptian's weapons away from him, and he kills him with his own weapons. Think Jet Li, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Sylvester Stallone all rolled up into one. That's who this guy is. He is a terrifying person. And that might disturb you. Why does somebody like David need somebody like Benaiah? It's so that you'll love David. <laughs> Every pastor needs an assistant pastor that you can hate. This gives you the freedom to remain completely with good feelings of respect and affection towards me. So if other pastors come to you and you go, you know, I, I hate those pastors at Calvary Chapel. Gino's great, you know. <laughs> so the assistant pastors. So David burns his enemies' gods. He took the enemy's gold, and then he gives it to the Lord. That's heaven's strategy. Burn the enemy's gods. Take the enemy's gold. And give it to the Lord. I'm going to read at length just very quickly from, Donald, from uh, Alan Redpath. He writes, This is also the strategy of the Holy Spirit in the conquest of a soul saved by grace. Everything in life that stands in opposition to God has been condemned and put to death. Everything in a man's life which can be used to glorify God has, been, has to be dedicated and come under new ownership. Before God ever uses our lives, they have to be brought to Calvary. And there he picks them up and he uses them for his glory because everything in the temple must proclaim glory to God. And then Donald Gray Barnhouse in his 
his book on his commentary on the book of of uh, Romans, he writes this important thing, which I thought best says what I want to say to you. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, the true Christian never has to give up anything. Of course, I'm not speaking about sins, but there are a lot of things that will give him up. They will go one by one. There will be no grief. It will be the way childish occupations are abandoned. I never had to give up playing with tops and marbles. I never had to come to the place where I said, Oh, I'm a big boy now, and big boys don't play with marbles. So I will make a great effort to give up playing marbles. It didn't happen that way. One day I was playing marbles with a group of small boys, and some older boys came by. They looked at me and said, Hey, kid, can you field a ball? Sure I can, I replied with more vigor than accuracy. Well, they said, we're short a fielder. Get out there and see what you can do. I went out and was ready to play my head off to keep up with the older fellows. When it was my turn to bat, I was ready to swing till I burst and to run till I dropped and do all that I could to keep up with the biggest company. I was in. And when the game was over and the older boys And we older boys, as I classed myself, walked down the street past the little guys who were playing marbles. I didn't go back to the marbles. I'd graduated. I didn't give up marbles. Marbles gave me up. I like that. David ruled because God saved him. There came a point in David's life where he gave up selfishness. And he embraced his job. I'm to be the king. And this is what kings do. Kings protect the citizens. And in order for them to live in peace, in order for them to live in security, in order for them to live in hope, and in order to live in health, the Philistines can no longer be a threat. The Ammonites and the Moabites can no longer be a threat The Assyrians can no longer be a threat. And the things that are hounding you to the west of you, to the east of you, to the north of you, to the south of you, those things that are pressuring you and manipulating you, they've got to go. The good news? Jesus is willing to get rid of them. Because he's the king. Let's pray.